Hi, you're listening to the best bits of Breakfasters with Mon, Nat and Daniel. We're on Triple R every weekday morning, broadcast live from 6 to 9am from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on the podcast this week, for the week ending Friday the 27th of October, Dr Jen was in discussing the weird science of finding your passion. And speaking of passion, Nat had a pretty entertaining Uber driver. Author and historian Robin Anir chats to us about her new book, Corners of Melbourne, and we ponder whether zippers are the superior closing mechanism. Reviewing books, Laura Petrobon looks at the new novel, But the Girl, which touches on Scotland and Sylvia Plath. It's by Jessica Jean-Mayu. And Tim Minchin, who's won too many awards to mention, although we give it a crack, uh, joins us ahead of the production Groundhog Day, which premieres in Melbourne. Melbourne's own Triple R. Dr. Jen's here to dip enthusiastically into a bottomless bag of weird science. Morning, Dr. Jen. <laughs> Good morning. You know me, I'm always enthusiastic. Truly. How could, how could one not be enthusiastic when it comes to science, right? That's right. Well, that's right. And once you're bored of science, you're bored of life. Ooh, can I write that down somewhere? I think it might be a very quotable quote, young man. That's excellent. Well, yes, you certainly impart that passion for us because it can be quite dry. But this certainly doesn't appear to fall anywhere within that ballpark. Yeah, well, I think, you know, this whole idea of passion. So I guess my first thought today is... How many times do you reckon, given the stage of the year that we're at right now, how many times do you reckon high school students, you know, finishing year 12 or or equally university students get that advice that, you know, if you want a happy life, if you want a fulfilling life, you've got to find your passion? Mm. How often do you reckon? I think it's very prominent and personally I think dangerously so. But, yes, passion... Yeah, it's become more acceptable to say that than to talk about like making money and having a solid career. Mm. It's like, no, that's sort of put forward as the gentle advice. But then there can be pressure to find your passion as well. I mean, I think it's always well-meaning, right? And as you say, the Mm. alternative is, is, you know, go out and get rich or go out and find the quickest way to to succeed. So I agree, like it's sort of that nice thing of Mm. find what you're interested in, but Basically, you know, I hear it all the time and like I said, I think it's well-meaning. But I sort of started to wonder, is it actually good advice? Because I reckon I've maybe not said it in exactly those words, but I've certainly talked about that sort of idea. So I thought, well, let's see if anyone's ever done any research into whether it's good advice or not. So that was my mission for Mm -hmm. this week. Um, And it turns out that the wording is a problem. So what I discovered is that when we say go and find your passion – What that kind of insinuates is that your passion is already fully formed. It exists somewhere out there in the world and your job is to discover it. Does that ring true? Does that kind of, Mm. is that what it means to you if you say Mm. find your passion? Mm. That's right. And what the researchers have shown instead is that passions, like any interest, is something that is formed and developed in real time. So, you know, right now if you're in year 12 doing exams and people telling you to find your passion, you think it's out there and if I can just find it and grasp onto it, I'll have this wonderful life. But, you know, think about things that you love. So we were just talking about my love of running, like where did that come from? Think about something that you love. Well, generally it starts with some kind of little spark of interest or curiosity. You see something or you hear something or you listen to something, you're exposed to something and you go, oh, that's interesting. And then over time you find ways to do more of it or listen to more of it or 
or, you know, be involved with more of it. And then as you get more experienced and more knowledgeable, it becomes rather than something that's interesting, it becomes an interest. And then that interest, if you love it enough and you're fortunate enough to be able to engage in that thing, you know, then it can become a passion. Does that sound right to mm, you? Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. So passions, you know, they develop. They're not just out there waiting to be found. So the question then becomes, is it a problem if we misunderstand this idea of passion? So if people are constantly being told you've got to go and find it, is that a problem? And the research suggests that it really does that this misunderstanding is really problematic and it can hold you back because if you assume that the passion is out there and unchangeable and just waiting for you to happen upon it, then, you know, and and that your mission is to find it rather than develop it, then you, um, you know, you kind of change your approach to life. You're not nearly as open to new ideas. You're not nearly as good at kind of dealing with setbacks. You know, if you start something new, you're probably really not very good at it. And you have to be willing to accept that you might fail a few times, you might not be as good at something as you'd like to be. And and so if you have this understanding that it's just a process and I'm developing this interest and this passion, then you tend to be quite good at dealing with those setbacks. You're quite creative in how you deal with those sort of problems. So they've kind of identified that there are two ways of thinking So I don't know if you remember or if you've been exposed to it. Mine as a teacher, I'm sure you'll know this idea of fixed mindset, growth mindset. So, you know, we don't want kids to grow up saying, I don't understand that. We want kids to grow up saying, I just don't understand that yet. And so we know that kind of when it comes to intellectual ability, people have this really like either a growth mindset, I'm just learning, I'm developing, the journey to the knowledge is the key versus, no, I just have to be good at stuff. Mm. And so it turns out that the research has shown that when it comes to interest, you can put people in the same two camps. The people who, when it comes to interest, say it's just fixed, I just have to find it, it's out there, I'm looking for it versus this growth mindset of, oh, no, I'm developing my interests. Mm. And all of this research has shown that it really changes the way you approach your life. It changes the way you respond to new ideas. It changes whether you are interested in discovering new things. Like, it actually really matters. And I'd never thought about it before. Mm. And passion seems to me to be inherently finite in terms of love or anything like that. Like, passionate can't burn hot forever. Yeah, absolutely. You've got to have this kind of more sustained sense of this is something valuable this is something I might be interested in contributing to or getting involved with yeah I think yeah and because when you talk about it with students as well like it implies that it would be a career for them and so that's interesting as well this idea of taking something that you love and then turning it into like a form of income or way of living, (laughs) it's like surely that's going to put a time limit on it as well. Like it becomes, can you maintain those two things side by side or, and if so, for how long? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the satisfaction that comes from being good at something, not necessarily being passionate about it, like being competent generates its own reward. Yeah, absolutely. And there's different ways of thinking about our interests and, and what we might want to, you know, yeah, do you want to make money from this? Do you just want to enjoy doing it? Is and, and is it likely that over the years of your life and career that there'll be new things that spark your interest and that you want to get interested in? So the most recent study I found, so there's lots of studies that showed that, that it's really disadvantageous to have a fixed idea around interest and passion. It's a real problem. It changes a lot of things. But the most recent study that I found and read, which I loved, was saying, well, can you change? 
change it? Can you teach people to have, you know, to have a growth mindset around interest and passion? Um, and it turns out you totally can. So the study I found, they had 700 um, liberal arts undergraduate students, uh, but they found out all about them and it turned out that they were all interested in arts, humanities, social sciences, and they all said, oh, no, I'm not a maths or science person. I'm not interested in that. I, you know, that's not my thing. Um, they randomly assigned them to two groups. They just did one half-hour online module as part of their studies. We're not talking a lot of time. But half of them in their half hour just did standard study skills, time management stuff. The other half of them spent half an hour reading and writing about developing interests. So they read a little piece describing this idea of, of passions being something you develop rather than you find. And they were asked to write a paragraph about when they developed a new interest. All of these students at this university had to do one semester of a science maths subject, even though they'd said, oh, I don't like that stuff. And because they'd done this intervention, they then tracked them at the end. Unsurprisingly, the students who'd had that half an hour of being encouraged to reflect on the fact that I can develop my passion, they liked the science subject more, they got better grades in the science subject, mm. and they came out much more likely to end up being kind of interdisciplinary people who could combine arts and science thinking. So half an hour intervention wow. changed the trajectory for these students and led people saying, I don't do science, I'm not interested in maths, to going, oh, yeah, maths, science. Be open to it. You know, I'm open to that idea. I, I'm happy to kind of problem solve even if I find it hard to understand. So you can change your thinking and I guess the motto here is just understand, you know, you're not trying to find this pre-existing thing. You're, you're at liberty to choose what you're interested in and to develop your passions and, and you know, indulge your curiosities. Take the opportunity to develop new ideas and, and new interests. And if you are a teacher or a parent or a boss, think about the culture you create around you in terms of encouraging people to pursue different interests, curiosities, understand you'll probably be crap at something, mm. you know, in the beginning. That's fine. We're happy to fail here. But if it's something that interests you, you know, get involved with it. Um, How often do you listen to an expert? or someone you might admire who's uh, absolutely proficient in one area and you hear them talk at length and realise they're actually well-rounded. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think just that idea of being well-rounded and it's okay to have lots of interests, even if some of those interests are things you're not particularly good at, if they keep your mind open to new experiences... You know, I, I don't know. I love this research. I think it's a really it. good outcome. So next time you're tempted to say to someone, just find your passion, stop yourself, bite your tongue, and instead say something like, oh, there's a million things you could be interested in. Have fun discovering them all mm. or something, you know. And also, yeah, to interrogate your own passion and what you self-identify as your passion. Yep. And realise that you may be really limiting yourself. You may have put yourself in some boxes and say, now that I'm in my 20s slash 30s slash 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, you may have self-limited yourself in saying, I'm a mm kind of person. Mm. Maybe you could be someone who does all of these other things as well. And, and so, it's kind of freeing, right? And someone on the text line is relating to it and they say that the um, – the the born to it myth is so strong. Yeah. So the the idea that you're born with with skills and innate talents and that will feed your passion and if you're not then find something else. Yeah, and, and I think true. you know like there are sometimes you know like <laughs> I look at really fast runners when I'm running really slowly and you know genetically I haven't been blessed with the perfect body for running <laughs> and you know I'm never going to be a super fast runner but doesn't mean I don't get a lot of joy out of it. Doesn't mean it doesn't really fulfil me. It doesn't mean it's not an important part of my life. So there are some things when you know your genetics. 
um, you know, play a role for sure. But yeah. there's plenty of times when unless you're aiming to be the absolute best in the world at whatever the thing is, it doesn't really matter. Mm. <laughs> you can still have an attitude of, oh, well, I'm going to have a go at this. It's a benefit. Um, I'm contractually not allowed to com- comment on your body, although I do. <laughs> Uh, Dr. Jen can be found online at Cy Doc Martin, and um, perhaps all some information and links and form past work is there. What's the title of your book again, Dr. Jen? Uh, why am I like that? Why am I and like I'm that? I'm currently working on a second one, oh, which is beautiful. Called, why is my mother like this? <laughs> Actually, no, hang on. I think I've just totally stuffed up the title of my own book. I think it's why am I like this, this. and it's going to be why is my mother like that. But don't quote me on no, that. No, you sound passionate. That's well for sure. Dr. Jane, thanks as always. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. During Fringe, I caught a fair few Ubers. More Ubers than I would have liked, but that's kind of beside the point. Just kind of getting home at night. Mm. And typically they'd pull up out the front of Trades Hall where I'd been performing. I'd get in and they would, I think it was the first time it happened, they prompted me. They said, have you been working? And I would be like, yes. And they'd be like, what's going on here? I'm like, oh, it's the Melbourne Fringe. And I'd be like, yes, I've just been working on the bar. So I would just typically say I've been working on the bar or working like as an usher um, just to kind of streamline the conversation. Like it's a point of like common ground just to kind of. Don't have to explain it. Exactly. Mm. You know, they'd be like, oh, how was it? How was your night? I'd be like, yeah, it was busy. How about yours? And I don't feel like I'm lying to them because I can draw on plenty of experience from working evenings in kind of similar roles. Mm. It only backfired once. And it wasn't during Fringe, it was actually another time. But from the similar area, I got picked up out the front of a Lebanese restaurant, Tiba's, like a a popular Mm. one. And they said to me, have you been working? And I was like, yes, I have. They're like, at Tiba's? They go, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And then they continued to ask me about specifics on the menu of Lebanese food. So now I know what's on the mixed grill platter for tush, the lamb sausage, the cutlets, the shish. It's a great restaurant. Yes. It's almost iconic, that restaurant. I know. So I was just like, yes. So now I carry menus with me throw any cuisine at me and I've got a few quick like dishes up my sleeve you know Italian oh pizza pasta yes so it's that you don't you're lying because you don't want to tell the truth because you don't want to talk about your life and have to explain the show or something like that precisely yeah Mm -hmm. um and yeah Normally, it, it is presumptuous to think that anyone would care, but as well, comedy specifically, and just really trying to avoid um, tell us a joke. joke. Exactly, ding, ding, ding. Mm. So um, it's like a little break from your life. But yesterday, I caught an Uber. The cars are the mechanic. I'm not ah. ready to talk about it. The highs and lows, honestly. Oh, I mean, highs being the petrol prices, the lows being the mechanic. But um, got an Uber and um, as soon as I got in, I was with my boyfriend, Darcy, and we, yeah, we just dropped the car off. Um, very charismatic driver named Graham. How's your day? Opened with the weather chat. Uh, oh, God, it's wild, you know, isn't it? It's like tropical out there. And he started very chatty. He's off to Japan soon. He just got a puppy. Mm-hmm. The puppy's friends with his pet rabbit. 
Great. He's lived all over the world. It was just nonstop. Happy for Graham. Yeah, he was a lovely guy and he, oh, what did he say? Yeah, and kind of opened with how he's, he typically wears a Hawaiian shirt when he drives in winter and when he picks up people from the airport. He goes, welcome to sunny Melbourne. And we're like, that's oh. a great one. <laughs> Get him a show at Fringe. Exactly. Yeah, he was. Yeah, it felt like a lift, a lift in a show. And Darcy was loving it. And he dropped into the conversation that it was his birthday. It is his birthday today. Happy birthday, Darcy. Happy birthday, Darcy. Happy birthday, Darcy. And the the chats kind of went on. And then Graham was like, "What are you doing tomorrow?" And he's like, "Oh, we're going to go for dinner, and then I'm going to see a comedy show because I've got a gig and I forgot to swap out of it." And uh, and I kind of shot Darcy look like you better not throw me under the bus here. Like mention me doing comedy. I cannot be bothered. <laughs> we have just dropped a car off to get fixed. And I kind of shot him a look. And then I hear Graham go, "Oh, comedy, love comedy." And I go, "Here we go." And then he goes, "I've done comedy. Oh. I did comedy <laughs> for over a decade. I was on some TV. I did some spots." And then he continued to accelerate onto a highway at this point. Quite a tricky point. I was like, I felt car sick and he launched into a five-minute bit (laughs) where he was doing an Arnold Schwarzenegger impersonation, which somehow involved the Goldilocks and the Three Bears. I'm not sure what happened, but I felt car sick at the time and I was like, I'm dizzy and I don't know what's going on. The acceleration was really jolty as we rocketed up this bridge on Heidelberg Road. And I just thought, well, there you go. It just like you think it's all about you. You think you're the only one doing comedy. He's uh, great. He's got over a decade he did some of spots. experience. He did some spots. He did telly. He did telly and... <laughs> And I don't know, it felt like maybe some kind of karmic retribution or something for lying about it. But I feel like some kind of cycle's been completed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I like he's got his rabbit and his dog as well. Yeah. He's, I mean, did you inspire him to maybe get back on stage? Oh, I didn't mention it. No, yeah. it was all about him. I wasn't going to pipe in and go, oh, hey, no, Graham. No, just... him. Did you say, Graham, get your show back on the road? Yeah. No, he didn't need it. I knew, like... Sounds I like was... he's got a captive audience. He does. And you knew that he... Knew exactly what he was doing. Like we were at at, when he finally kind of dropped the stand-up bomb. We were maybe a couple of three minutes from the house, but he like squeezed in like a tight set. Like he knew exactly what he was doing. It was like I just saw his eyes darting at the clock, darting in the rearview mirror, and like you want a sample. (laughs) And then as we accelerated, he's pulling into slip lanes and turning, doing an Arnold Schwarzenegger. This is too hard. Too hard. Yeah. I did. I thought of you, Daniel. I go, oh, it's pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> so, yeah, that felt like That's, some kind of moment. It's And it, I think being being stuck in a, in a vehicle on a freeway. Oh, yeah. You know, if you're in a comedy show and something, you're not – not vibing it doesn't really matter. Yeah, I think he's got this sussed out perfectly. And you know he was just priming gear for the next mm. the next people he picked up. So who knows? You could be the, the next passengers. It's quite good that he didn't know you were – like he didn't know you were a comedian. No. Because oh. I feel like he would have been angling for it. Imagine if he did know. Like he was already angling for a bit of Oh, He was an on. audience. Yeah. If he, if he thought you could get him a gig. Oh. No. I mean we talk a lot about – you know, not every art show can 
sell out and, you know, a lot of people who become mega famous talk about the early days and mm. not being able to get many people into their shows. Yeah. And what if fringe shows did start just being in cars? Yeah. Oh, like that show, Comedians in Cars. Yeah. Well, that's right. But it's so – and then you're a passenger and you you drive around for an hour – and then mm. you don't have to – it's not really awkward because they're navigating traffic mm. and you're in the back. I don't know. It's, is, it, is that possible? Would you go to a show in a car? I get oh, – I don't know. <laughs> I mean, when you go see bad comedy, yeah. like at least you don't have to it's, – it's, it make eye contact with the person Mm-mm. for being stuck in a car with them. But you don't need to make eye contact with them because their eyes will be on the road. You hope so. Yeah, you hope so. Yeah. And you can just say, just drop me out here. Yeah. yeah. Oh, but no, I feel like they'd lock you, lock you into a set time because that's the thing. I mean, mm. that that final couple of minutes in the car, like, I was sweating. Yeah, uh, right. It was just like a sensory overload. Did he do – And the yelling. There was so much yelling. Did he end on a big closer? Like, did he s- slow down to give him enough time to end on a big punchline? Oh, he had to pull up and go, and uh, – You know, his punchline – like, the punchline was that the Bears just ate Goldilocks. Oh. And maybe he said he did it in all the different – with – he um, – did the similar like premise with all the different fairy tales, and I couldn't really remember what happened in Goldilocks and the Three Bears. I was like, oh the, yeah, that's good. The Terminator was involved. Yeah, the, I don't know why Arnold Schwarzenegger was involved. And then no, his big closer was. Do you want to know how old I am? Oh yeah, and we're like, whoa, because oh. it was Darcy. How old are you turning? And then he's like, oh, I'm turning this age. Yeah. And then he's like, you want to know how old I am? And he's like. I'm 71. We're like, whoa, no way. Door slam. (laughs) (laughs) Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. Means a lot. Robin Anir is an historian, author and curator who has explored aspects of Melbourne and Victoria's history in exhibitions at the State Library of Victoria, the City Gallery at Melbourne Town Hall and who you might have seen featured in Gus Berger's award-winning 2022 documentary, The Lost City of Melbourne. Robin's eight books of history include Bear Brass, Imagining Early Melbourne, Fly Rebel Flag, The Eureka Stockade, A City Lost and Found, 2021's Adrift in Melbourne and now Corners of Melbourne, The Great Orange Peel Panic and Other Stories from the Streets. And to tell us about it, the former Breakfast is regular... And tireless trove advocate joins us now. Robin, welcome back to the show. It's great to be here. Oh, it's so uh, tr- terrific to have you in person. It, how have you got here this morning? I doubt it was by horse. <laughs> it was not, no. Mm. It was by train and tram, yep. And horses do loom large in the book. They sure do because the book is covering the sort of second half of the 19th century. So before there was motorised transport, it's all horses, all horses and shanks pony, yeah. Yeah, and the, people might not appreciate that it's in the same way that you might leave a car door unlocked as you jump in somewhere. Maybe you don't bother to type your horse. Yeah, yeah, and that was a big mistake. Uh, people trusted their horses. Uh, milkmen and milkmen's boys, often they were just preteens who were delivering the milk, would leave the horse on the walk and it would walk the length of the street and hopefully wait for them at the corner, but that did not always happen and collisions would happen that way or the horse would just walk over somebody, um, a small child. <laughs> um, or uh, more often fellas would... Uh, 
insufficiently tie up their horse out the front of a pub and, <laughs> and the horse would, uh, would go wandering or, or if they got frightened, uh, galloping. And there was one horse I'm thinking of on the corner of uh, a grocer's store on the corner of uh, Russell and Little Burke Street, a horse left there at the Exford Hotel, which is still there, uh, wandered across the road and broke a shop window with its nose so oh. that it could uh, it could sniff some cheese. <laughs> uh, but there was also a bottle of porter uh, nearby and there was a suggestion that it wanted a drink uh, the, same as its, uh, <laughs> the same as its navigator. Uh, so why corners? <sighs> I've always liked the idea of locating history to a particular place so you can stand in the spot and say, this happened here and corners are perfect for that. But, of course, corners are also perfect because so much happened there. People would meet there either deliberately or by accident. Uh, all sorts of collisions happened there. You know, fights would happen. Pubs are on corners, so they were particularly rowdy. And literal collisions between this ungovernable transport. You know, there were no traffic lights, no even traffic police. So you just had to figure out every intersection as you went. So just so much happened at corners and the intersections, the middles of them. And what about um, Melbourne's corners? Like what makes them kind of unique? Well, I don't know if this is true, but someone well-placed to know has told me that Melbourne CBD has more corners than the centre of almost any other city. Now, Mm. I don't know how this works. It's to do with the grid. It's to do with the lanes and so on. So there's one thing. Mm -hmm. But... uh, I don't know. It's not specially Melbourne. Melbourne is less kind of circular and circuitous than other cities. I'm thinking of Sydney, which made its own shape. It wasn't made in that formal way that Melbourne was. So um, Melbourne's corners, you know, are a particular kind of feature of a grid-like city. And just, uh, I just love some of the meeting places that were there and that continue to be meeting places. Yeah, a way into the stories of the city. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Melbourne, I remember when I moved to Sydney, people from Sydney made fun of me for being from Melbourne because they said I lived on a swamp <laughs> and talked about the Yarra. The Yarra cops a lot of flack, but maybe rightly so. Can we talk about, there's a chapter in your book called Effluent <laughs> Society, which is a wonderful pun. Uh, what might people not know about the Yarra? How was the Yarra? Well, the Yarra was uh, a sewer itself um, for for much of its early history. And Melbourne was a, a, a renowned as a, a poorly sanitised city and that was partly to do with, yes, it kind of was low-lying, big areas of it were swampy, um, not just Melbourne itself but its inner suburbs. And, yeah, the Yarra was the drain, so everything drained into the Yarra. The drain of the CBD was Elizabeth Street. That was the lowest point. You had two hills draining down to that. And from there, all the city's effluent flowed <laughs> into the Yarra. So we had these wide gutters, about a metre wide. They were like channels uh, at the sides of every street. And, yeah, that was... If you were, if you're a well-behaved Melbourneian, that's where you would chuck your rubbish as you went. But it was also where, you know, there were no public toilets, so people would just, you know, have a slash in any lane. But that was what laneways were for before they were, you know, glorious tourist attractions. <laughs> um, that was what they were for, and of course, you know, it would all just drain into those, and hence into the yarra. And this was the chief smell of Melbourne. So Melbourne, Melbourne was, known was as, stunk. Yeah, yeah, it was known as Smellbourne uh, <laughs> in, the, in the second, in, in the later uh, 19th century. And that would have been the top note of it was the smell of urine. Wow. Mm. Do, and how did they how did they overcome that? Do you know how long it took to get rid of the stench? Well, I mean, public toilets became uh, a thing very late in the 19th century, but it was, of course, undergrounding the drainage that, that 
solve things. And the, the Board of Works, which did this work, really didn't come online until the 1890s. So it was, it was, it was a long time coming. And, and the period covered by this book, uh, it gets very little you know, underground um, uh, drainage. It's, it's all there on the surface. Would you ever swim in the Yarra? Now? Yeah. Oh, I don't mean in the by in accident, Richmond, possibly. But, okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah Good answer. Even, even then, I mean, people. Yeah, it, it people only ever happened, it only ever happened by accident, yeah. except in the very earliest life of Melbourne, when mm. the, the, when when there was still relatively clean water, sort of upstream. Mm. And yeah. the city of stinks relates, <laughs> in part, I suppose, to the commit no nuisance, uh, which signs that there are still remnants of in the city. Yeah, yes, of course, that's mm. right. Yeah, any the wall of any building was just there to be pissed off, basically. <laughs> and I found a fantastic image in the State Library just this week of a building on the corner of Little Burke and Queen Street, a hotel at, called the New Excelsior, and it had a big bare wall with the words commit no nuisance and you could see because it was taken from some distance away you could actually see the line of kind of dribbles down the wall <laughs> there was even a small one where they're in the corner with a dog nearby you know so it was sort of that was that was it so what you did. we're drawing on newspapers so i there's a bit of crime going on that ah. uh, we canvas uh what sticks out for you uh pickpockets appear oh. to appear frequently yeah, 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 pickpockets. They were just great opportunists. So anywhere a crowd gathered, and in the 19th century, crowds gathered in public places for practically no reason. I always come back to it. There was no TV, so people were outside on the streets. And at the slight, for the slightest reason, you know, the laying of a foundation stone or a, a, a bit of a leak in the, in the public street or pulling down a building, an enormous crowd of hundreds would gather. And this was just manner for, um, for a pickpocket. And they'd just be there in the crowd. And I don't know how they did it because they were often caught with their hand in or near a woman's pocket. And women's pockets were complicated things. They were a split in the side of their dress, which had kind of a, an apron pocket inside, sort of, on top of their petticoat. So to be able to um, get your hand in there and, and pinch their purse undetected mm. would, would have been quite a feat. But this this was their trade. And also to bust someone with intent to pickpocket. Uh, the idea, I suppose, is that's a woolly area, isn't it? It certainly was. And pickpockets would complain. And there were some of them were let off uh, the charges because they were victimised by particularly plainclothes detectives. Once you'd been nicked for pickpocketing you'd done your time you came back out they would follow you and could and they'd get a they'd get some sort of reward or you know kickback for each uh, arrest, successful arrest and uh, they would just they'd just trail you and any time you were near a crowd or near a crowd of people waiting for a bus they they would nick you and say they saw your hand near someone's pocket that was it mm-hmm. yeah. what do you enjoy about the language looking back at some of these reports a lot of the reporting is Seems quite florid. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was florid and it was lush. Well, you didn't have pictures. There were no pictures in these newspapers, not even headlines. So the the language, the the density of the language was was everything. And, and, and the journalists had a lot of fun with that. They really did. They knew what to do with words. Do you have any... I mean, when do you suppose the phrase larrikin emerged? Well, I don't imagine. I know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I can pinpoint it. It emerged in the press in 1870. So before 1870, the word's never been in the press. February 1870, it appeared a couple of times and then each month of that year, more mentions and then it was just wall to wall. So presumably it had emerged on the streets 
in the lead up to 1870, but it didn't make that leap into newsprint until 1870. And it emerged in a very particular place, it seems, on the streets, in Gertrude Street, probably on the corner of Fitzroy Street. Uh, there were some gravel rocks there that had been left over from a, a building construction some years before. And the young locals, who until 1870 were known as colonial boys, boys <laughs> not as... Uh, um, not as larrikins, used to uh, hang out there. And among other things, they used to sort of put on show and um, song and dance shows for one another's edification. And one of their favourite songs was one called The Leary Kin, which came out of a musical oh. in London uh, in the mid-1860s. And this seems to... So Leary meant knowing or wise or tricky and kin was like a young person. So they kind of strung these together and this seems to be the source of... Larrikin and, and, and kids from Fitzroy of that era said it was never pronounced larrikin. It was always lyrican mm. uh, and it just turned into larrikin once, hmm. it, once it turned into print. I was in the uh, back streets of Carlton yesterday and laneways and I nearly slipped over in the wet and I was reminded of your book. <laughs> I wonder why. Yeah. <laughs> Can you, we've teased it because it's in the title but tell us how you were introduced to this orange peel panic. <laughs> Uh, it was it was everywhere in the press uh, in the sort of 1860s and 70s, I guess. And this was a time after Melbourne's footpaths had been paved with, with slate or with shiny stone of some sort. And combine that with leather shoes, that's slippery enough, but then add the magic ingredient, which was orange peel. So fruit sellers were on the streets, mainly at the street corners, and uh, oranges were in season for a few months of the year and... Over springtime, really, they came in from Tahiti and, as they said, the South Seas. And uh, once oranges were there, I mean, they were the ideal snack, you know, drink and food in one, <laughs> healthy kind of, and uh, but only up to a point because people would strew the orange peel as they walked along the footpath and it was just deadly in that on between that combination of surfaces, the orange peel sandwich would <laughs> would bring you to the pavement with a crash. And it did. So people broke limbs. Um, nobody died as far as we know, at least not directly. But I do begin the book with the story of a man who whose life never recovered its former, its former flame uh, after he broke a leg uh, on a bit of orange peel in the Melbourne streets. His life went downhill from there. He's lost his marriage, his friends, his career and ended up uh, drinking um, poison in a hotel on the corner of Little Burke and uh, Exhibition Streets oh. as all as, as a result. Of I would say a slippery problem. slope. But that's <laughs> yeah. We see it in action, yeah. Uh, there is so much more besides. We've naturally only just scratched the surface and you never appear to repeat yourself ever between books. It's an endless resource. It is an endless resource. The resource being Trove newspapers online at the uh, National Library of Australia. Free, fantastic. We are so lucky. Oh, well, congratulations. Corners of Melbourne is the new book of history by Robin Ania. It's out via text publishing. Robin, thank you so much again. Thanks for having me. Triple R. Zippers have been at the front of mind for me um, this past week. So I have about five pairs of jeans in rotation. Mm-hmm. I don't know what we think of that. Is that maybe, too many? Maybe a lot. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's like two shades of denim coloured. Anyway, four out of the five all have zippers. One pair of the jeans is has the button fly. And it's like not uncommon that, you know, when I'm out and about, 
that I'll sometimes realize that I've missed one of the buttons mm. on the fly. And just recently, well, just the other week, I realized one of the ones up the top was undone. I was out in public. I'm like, oh, this is embarrassing. And, and I'm like, why are we still doing this actually? Like why is anyone opting, like designers opting for the button fly over the zipper? Mm. Um, like surely the zipper's more, it's less bulky. It's more flat. efficient. Yeah, it's flat. And then my friend was like kind of shrugged at that point, but then they just threw in an interesting fact of, of um, apparently it's one manufacturer that has like had like most of the market share all over the world for zippers. So if you're wearing like a pair of pants now, most likely if you look at your zipper, mm. it will say YKK. So it does. Yeah. So it's that they've got, it's like, it's changing now. It's becoming more competitive, but they still have, I think, 40% of the market share. Um, I think there's a, a Chinese manufacturer coming in. Anyway, I've just kind of gone on this deep dive <laughs> on zippers all of a sudden though because I just loved that little fact. And then yesterday there was an article in The Guardian that was like how to get more wear out of your clothes and repair your zipper. And then I was like, yeah, I was my bias was definitely to the zipper, but I was like, no, wait a minute. Yes, they are incredibly efficient and convenient, but they can go bust. And if they go bust, there's a, it's a lot more kind of work and skill. To repair Quiet. a zipper, yeah. Then a button, yeah. Like, mm. do either of you have a preference? Like zippers, zippers, one hundred percent. Why do we? Do some people call them zips? Yes, yeah. Um, some people. Well, no, there's nothing wrong. But yeah, but what's because if I've been saying zip all this time, should I have been chucking on an ER? I feel like the zipper is for specifically for clothing, right? I don't know. That's how I. That's just my kind of guess. Like I would say zip on a purse or a bag. Yeah. But for pants, it's, it's a like zipper. It's a zip on the or fly. Or fly. I mean, the, yeah. the, the claws make me nervous. Uh, I mean, mm. they just always have. Yeah. And mm. there's it's delicate and you have to be careful. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds like you have a stressful time dressing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've, I mean, the scene from, you know, there's something about Mary, I think it instilled fear around the globe. But so do you have any button-down flies? In- I have in the past, but, I yeah, I just think they always, at least on me, and jeans don't particularly suit me in general, but I feel like buttons, yeah, look, look lumpy and I like the flatness. Yeah, but... Uh, yeah, the the flatness of, of a zipper. Zip. But there is, I've, yeah, come to like, because I was like, yeah, zippers can go bust. And then I was just like transported back to 2018 and I had overpacked a suitcase, like about to oh. go overseas, yep, to Edinburgh. My mum was picking me up to take me to the airport, stressed, nervous, clammy hands, ugh, pulling it over, stretching the zipper, boom, it's gone. Like a week of slowly kind of packing, trying to put things into a corner was just wiped like that. What did you do? I pulled a rucksack. It was very fortunate that I had like an old school like a backpack backpack from my backpacking days. I was hoping I was entering like a new era, a more mature traveling era of a wheelie suitcase. Mm. It wasn't to be. It was just one drawstring big heavy canvas backpack and everything just got jammed into the um into the rucksack. And if I went what do you do in the in the in a pinch, like, is there a quick way to mend a zipper? Or no, I don't think so. Just you get some belts and tighten it down. I mean, in a in a pinch, I think I've chucked a giant garbage bag over it. Yeah, and been in the airport. It looks like I'm hauling a dead body. Uh-huh. <laughs> so you've been betrayed by a zipper on a suitcase too. Yeah. This is why they say the hard shell suitcases are good. 
mm. because they don't stretch as much and it's less likely that the zips are going to burst because you can't yeah. you can't stretch it like you can. But I think you can it can make you overly confident because I've got one of those cases now and I there's still fabric attached to the zipper that you can stretch. Like I feel like Or if it gets a bit stuck in it, like a t shirt stuck in it when you zip it up and then it gets jammed. Yeah. Like I feel like <sighs> I'm pushing that case suitcase to the limit or that bit of fabric that connects it to the zipper i mean as a zipper gets destroyed there's the that halfway point where the maybe the actual thing that you hold on to the zipper the zipper nodule or the, mm. the, 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 the handle yeah. uh falls off and mm. so <gasps> how do you leverage the zipper without yeah. having anything to hold on to Just- you're poking it with your fingers. Isn't like it pathetic? Trying to slide it up. Oh, it's so lame. Or that bit where you zip it up and it looks fine and then you see it burst <laughs> open at the end. It, exactly. Like an air bubble. Yeah, and it slowly separates. <laughs> oh, I feel terrible in this segment. <laughs> it is. It's catastrophic. So those button downs are not looking so bulky now, Maybe are they? A button down suitcase yeah. <laughs> is the way to go. A button down purse. Imagine that every time you buy your latte and just buttoning that open well, one by one. You know what? I find annoying mm. on um, Duna covers have, mm. oh. have, have buttons. Why don't more Duna covers or any mm-hmm. have zips? So much easier to change sheets. Then go mm, 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 and you do a little button up every time you change it. Yeah, so you want to zip across the base. Yeah, yeah. wow. Why I've never seen that. It's kind of a fusion of like a Duna cover meets a sleeping bag. Yeah, why, should I, why, why they don't do zips more often? I think it could have something to do with like because of really like um, – hardy dense metal zip can cause maybe damage to other garments or fabric in the washing machine okay but a plastic lighter zip could work maybe but imagine your annoyance of like getting it jammed on the doona but if it's discreet i don't say if it was velcro Mm. can you wash velcro (gasps) This is I think so. Yeah. So I, I don't know why Sheridan or whoever's making Duna covers hasn't upgraded. Mm. Yeah. And then it's it's a clear signal as to what end that it is. Yeah. Because that can be mm. dicey or difficult to discern yeah. when, when you're making a bed. Yeah, because it's true. You lose like I, you always lose a few buttons on the Duna cover. And, and you've then got a it, king. You're there for 20 minutes buttoning up your Okay. I don't have just a king. bragging now. I don't have a king. A king is too big. I get overwhelmed. But the longer the zip, the more that can go wrong. It's true. It's tr- uh, So uh, it, oh. like a, ba- a big bag. If Sometimes if you're doing up a big bag for a big trip, mm-hmm. once it's zipped, it's you're not actually that confident because the zip goes on a bit of a journey. Mm. Like some parts of the luggage are more taut than others and yep. others it slides along easily. Mm. And you, you don't achieve total peace in your heart until the zip is mm. properly closed. No. Okay, there's a Confucius saying. <laughs> <laughs> He achieved peace in his heart when the zip was closed. I mean, if they could find like a quiet Velcro, then I think that that would be the ultimate closing, like sealing mechanism. Is this, are we still talking doing a couple of You want Velcro pants? Just every yeah, <laughs> Velcro pants. Wouldn't that? Imagine. I mean, that's what that's what like um, manpower uses. You know, when they. F- 
pull off the like the, oh, there's some kind of Velcro <laughs> fastening, isn't it? When yeah, them that's suspicious. I've heard. <laughs> you don't want them struggling with a zip. Like, Damn it! I really lose momentum. <laughs> Someone did text in a brand that makes dinners with zips. Ah, well, well, well. Or a, a, a shop called Sheet Society. Was I allowed to say that they texted in? I thought people would want to know. Yeah, absolutely. You can share the knowledge. But they're doing it. Okay, I'll Google them. But um, since you're saying that jeans are, with buttons are lumpy, I'm gonna. Go get some. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Triple R. Triple R. Publishing Wunderkin, Laura Pietro Bronze here to talk books. Morning, Laura. Morning, everyone. Uh, now, yeah, t- please. Uh, w- what have you? I've, I've got. <laughs> I've got this wonderful book. It actually is quite a striking um, cover, um, But the Girl by Jessica Zahn May Yu. Um, if anybody wants to give that a quick Google, it's got this great kind of like um, pink uh, Greek statue type face that's a bit like been, you know, changed around a little bit on this really great green background. Um, it is definitely one of those books that you just want to grab off the shelf because it looks really intriguing and I'm very happy to say that the uh, in the words of the book also are also very intriguing <laughs> as well. So we've got a great match between cover and content here. Um, this book is about our unnamed protagonist. I'm going to call her Girl because that's who she is. Girl is uh, spending spring uh, away from Australia and her Malaysian-born parents and uh, grandmother on a writer's residency in Scotland. So she is the recipient of a Commonwealth scholarship to attend um, this particular workshop which she has mixed feelings about Um, and she is supposed to be working on her post-colonial novel and also wrapping up her PhD on the works of Sylvia Plath. Um, However once Girl is all the way in Scotland on this writer's residency all she can think about is her family back in Australia the stories of her upbringing, their own journey um, from Malaysia to Australia um, and how that life and their expectations for her and her own way of being up until now is kind of at odds with the life that she's choosing to uh, pursue and what all of that means. And it is a wonderful kind of stream of consciousness novel So we are right in the thick of things in Girl's mind as she kind of lands in London before travelling to Scotland, the meeting the people, the really eclectic and kind of weird artists at this writer's residency, uh, all of who are working on different things. They're all, I shouldn't call it a writer's residency, it's an artist's residency. They're all working on different things. She finds herself... Um, not working on what she's supposed to be working on. She finds herself questioning why she's writing a post-colonial novel. Why can't I call it, you know, an immigrant novel, an immigrant story novel? Why did I accept a Commonwealth residency, uh, Commonwealth grant for this residency when I don't even really feel like we should be part of the Commonwealth? There's all these contradictions in in how she's thinking and as we follow her through, you know, her Uh, weeks at this residency we're kind of slipping back and forth between the present and the past as she you know unfolds the story of her own life her expectations while she was growing up as kind of like a um what's the word that they use a um you know perfect minority um you know her own parents experiences growing up in Malaysia the sacrifices that they made and how that impacted her upbringing and she's really trying to sort out in this 
through this residency and uh, making kind of friends with other people and avoiding the work that she's supposed to be doing on this conf- on this um, residency program and muddling it all up in her mind and trying to kind of, I guess, spit out who she actually is and who she wants to be and how that fits in with writing and academia and all the other things that she's learnt. Gee, it doesn't sound like she got lots of work done. No, she didn't. She, she barely got any work done and it is just a wonderful because you're reading, you're right inside her head and you're reading this book and she's sitting there. She kind of um, befriends or has this um, uneasy like kind of relationship with a painter on the residency, Clementine, who's like, I want to paint you. So she's like, okay, I'm going to sit for a portrait. You know, this is also a way of, you know, reclaiming and discovering who I am and how other people see me. And Clementine wants to bring in elements of this, you know, Sylvia Plath research that she's been doing. And the longer it goes on, the more girl is like, today is the day I will tell Clementine I will not sit for the portrait. But she goes back and spends hours in pain, kind of uncomfortable, stressing about her own work, but can't bring herself quite to kind of bring down her, like, put her foot down to Clementine or return to the work that she's supposed to be doing. She's too busy, I think, mulling everything over. And all of this time, I think, sitting with Clementine, thinking about all the different contradictions in her life just overtakes the work that she's supposed Mm. to be doing. And in what way does Sylvia Plath loom in the novel? Yeah, it's a really... I I don't know much about Plath's work and there are, I guess, you know... um, parallels from what I remember reading The Bell Jar very, a very long time ago, which is Sylvia Plath's, like, seminal work, some would say. Um, there are a couple of, like, parallels that I think maybe the author reflects on in the girl's own kind of journey here as she, you know, avoids work, um, you know, is kind of like spending all this time in her brain thinking through things, you know, looking and examining ways like why am I drawn to Plath when Plath herself, you know, wrote at a time where um, racial stereotypes, you know, were very much prominent in fiction. You know, the um, there's also a wonderful table in the book that kind of goes through the girl's own definitions of how she sees herself. She's not a Plath fangirl. This is all the behaviour that makes up a Plath fangirl. She's a Plath ac- Plath academic she sees Plath differently it's kind of trying to like justify her like love and interest in this author but how does that reflect on her as somebody who's not a young white woman um I think it's a a common theme that she's played on in the past being like I'm going to be a writer and I've spent all my time being Esther Greenwood who's the um uh, who's one of the characters in uh, The Bell Jar and, and being Jane Eyre and being Elizabeth Bennet and now I'm going to write my own version of these stories. And she's like, oh, that's kind of a bit of, you know, like rubbish on my part, isn't it? Like I don't know if I can I can do that. Who am I to say that I can do that? Um, I think if you um, are more familiar with Plath than I, you probably get a little bit more out of those sections. But I found it really interesting, I guess, as kind of like a way to kind of look into how she views academia Mm. and how she um, is trying to grapple with those stories of identity and being like, oh, why do I like this woman so much who really doesn't represent me at all and my experiences and what I've been through at all? Are there any stakes for squandering the residency? Not particularly. (laughs) I think this is, like I wrote down in my notes, it's like this is not a novel with plot this is a novel where you spend a lot it's an interior novel you spend a lot of time mulling things over and and things do move and there's 
um, you know, things that she's supposed to be doing. There's also a conference that she's supposed to be presenting at and working on her pa- her PhD paper, you know, to be able to present something at this conference. So there's, at the end of the novel, there's kind of stakes there, but really you can kind of, it kind of examines as well. These artists are kind of sitting around talking about their art, um, kind of, you know, having these, having these discussions where um, she is occasionally will bring up something about race or how she perceives things and everybody will be very incredibly understanding but also kind of miss the point. Mm. So it's also very, I think, unfulfilling for her in that sense of like, well, she could she's wasting her time doing all this work but she's not even getting anything out of like collaborating with other artists and exploring that world there how's that experience reading that did that frustrate you at all or did you feel panicked being like she's got to get something done I did I did a little bit because because you're but you're right in her brain I guess so you kind of in the same way that she forgets you forget as well because you're here reading about the story of her father and her mother coming to Australia the sacrifices her grandmother made working as a maid in order to you know get money for the family and all this kind of stuff so you kind of snap in and out of the present narrative and you're like oh my god hold on she's got all this work that she needs to be doing she needs to be doing you know I think you I I in particular have a certain view of how a story should go and I love a story that has this like big denouement at the end this is not that kind of novel although there are some very dramatic kind of things that happen at the end it's really like an exploration of self um a couple of Reviews online called it a coming of age novel. I was going to ask about yeah. that because that seems to dumb it down a bit. It 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 doesn't it doesn't dumb it down in that sense. Like I think it's just a novel where you are sitting and thinking, and if you are a person who spends a lot of time in your head, you'll really relate to girl. And there were some things that I did because I think we've all been, you know, kind of experiencing something, and we all kind of like have a comment made to us and that triggers something in our brain and all of a sudden we're technically listening to that person but we're also on a Mm. tangent out here where we're like, oh, remember that thing that happened and what does that actually mean and how does that actually impact me um, in my day-to-day life and how I how I feel today um, so that's that's I guess if you if you enjoy that kind of novel if you're somebody who likes that introspection that picking apart you know kind of who you are as a person and how you became that way I think this is definitely the novel for you um, I think uh, Jessica Zahn May You has a wonderful um couple of wonderful turns of phrases in there like I really love her opening line which I think um it's this is her opening line it was an undecided undecided and hazy spring the spring that MAS 370 disappeared and I didn't know what I was doing in London and I think that's such a wonderful line that immediately places those of us who were like uh, adults or remember MAS 370 disappearing. It's like, oh, it's 2014. And that all of a sudden gives a lot of context to the discussions I think that they're having about um, right at this artist residency. Um, You know, maybe people's ideas are less developed about race than what they are now as a person in 2013 reading this book. So it it provides you all of that wonderful context and you can kind of see it through a different lens of Mm. like, oh, this is why I might be a bit frustrated with these people or this is why she's feeling this particular way where she doesn't have the language always to kind of express herself in the way she wants. Um, You know, there's a very different conversation about race happening at this point. Um, and I think that's very interesting to read as somebody who's, you know, been through the last couple of years um, reading and consuming the different, like, media that you consume. I think you can't help but 
be really pleased that it places the novel in that way. And there's plenty of other examples, but I don't want to give too much. Well, away. with the yeah. protagonist as a thought experiment, with the protagonist in But the Girl, if we visited the girl in ten years, would she go? Yeah, I blew that time. I... Yeah, I don't know because I I think I think it would be a I think in my interpretation of the ending with everything that happens, I think it's a kind of freedom that comes with the ending of experiencing this artist residency, experiencing how other people create art. But the thinking exercises that she's going through and doing, I like to think that at the end of at the end of it, it's scrapping the post-colonial novel and it's embracing the stories that she's been told, the narratives that she's been told and bringing forth that particular story that is really true to her and it's not trying to tick any boxes of what people expect in academia or what people expect from her. She's writing something that's more true to herself and I maybe that's as well another connection that comes in with Sylvia Plath, like writing truth to experience and mm. putting a name to that. Well, tell us again what's inspired our discussion this morning. So I've uh, just been reviewing But the Girl by Jessica Zahn Mayu and I just want to shout out quickly that it's also a debut novel and mm. I, I really... I always love when a debut novel does something different like this stream of consciousness thing. You know, it's a bit unexpected, it's a bit different and it's like a, a swing that really paid off for this particular novel. Wonderful. Yeah. Laura Pietrobon, thank you. Thank you. Triple R. Tim Minchin is a composer and lyricist, musician, comedian, actor, writer, producer and director who 20 years ago debuted at Melbourne Fringe, his solo comic cabaret, Naval, Cerebral Melodies with Umbilical Chords and proceeded to win in Edinburgh the Perry Award for Best Newcomer before touring the world with shows including So Live, Ready for This and presently An Unfunny Evening with Tim Minchin and his piano. On the back of his global success as writer of music and lyrics for the stage adaptation of Roald Dahl's Matilda, which won a record seven Olivia Awards, five Tonys, and was itself adapted into a film in 2022. Tim has returned to the genre with Groundhog Day. Based on the 90s hit film, the musical makes its Australian premiere in Melbourne after a record-breaking season at the Old Vic, and to tell us about it, the Helpman Award-winning rock and roll nerd joins us now. Tim, welcome back That's to That's a good R. introduction. <laughs> I like that. I should carry you around with you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's, you can't even fit in the... the the narration for an Oscar-winning film or the uh, Order of Australia. It's oh, yeah. pretty preposterous, huh? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it went well uh, <laughs> since I moved to Melbourne 21 years ago. Yeah, and, and it's interesting that you bring up the Melbourne Fringe show because it's virtually to the day 20 years since I kind of made the decision that I, I was... I'd moved to Melbourne, I was married, I was a bit lost and I was trying to get an agent because I wanted to act and I was trying to get a record deal because I wanted to do, um, you know, be a, be a rock star and I was playing piano for cabaret artists and working with Eddie Perfect and the fabulous singlets and doing, like, just doing all these things and then I just went, I'm just going to put everything together because I couldn't, I wasn't getting anywhere mm. and I just sort of mashed it all up and people... Uh, at the Kitten Club in Collins Street, where it's not there anymore, but um, people came and they just laughed the whole time, and I thought, oh, maybe I'm a comedian. Yeah. And then I, and then I became a comedian. Then I tried to unbecome a comedian, yeah. which is much harder than, <laughs> yeah. than you might think. Have yeah. you reverse engineered your life in any way and thought about 
periods that you found difficult and realised maybe it was worthwhile to go through it? Or have you told yourself a story about your own career? That's a really good uh, question. <laughs> I think we we all do that. And 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 the weird thing about my career is other people have told the story too. There's been a couple of different documentaries, an Australian story, and this sort of nice narrative of like uh you know because I, I didn't really get anywhere till I was about 30 so it's like 10 years of absolutely nothing and then boom overnight and and it it all makes sense once you sort of draw a line back through it but of course it's uh utterly arbitrary what what is interesting looking back is that I think I have had more intention more design than I felt like I had because you always feel powerless when you're well, not anymore but you you feel powerless a lot when you're an artist you feel like you're tossed on the seas of chance and other people's whims and still even at my 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 point now I'm I'm slightly you know I was pitching my new TV show yesterday and to a bunch of people some commissioners a lot of them 10 15 years younger than me who are, hold the key to whether or not I'm allowed to make my next thing you know but looking back I I actually have been quite methodical uh, in a way that almost surprises me in hindsight. I don't remember myself as methodical, but I'm like, oh, no, I laid all those foundations in a quite sort of deliberate way. Yeah, mm. learning off maybe other different performers, like you were saying, collaborating with all different people and yeah. getting to connect those dots. when you Or, just, to, or yeah. like the no's, like the things I said no to, having a panel show in the UK or whatever. and and Or, or like I've, I've always wanted to act. I always have acted, mm. but I wasn't getting anywhere. But then when I got known as a comedian I went well I'm just going to take a small role here and I'm going to take a serious role there and I'm just going to build my skills up to see if I'm good enough and then I'll write a show that I can be this like it's I was quite um yeah I'm a bit of a psycho I think I'm a bit of a psycho (laughs) well maybe maybe your maybe your gut is a yes is calculative is more sensible than I realised. Yeah, more yeah. less arbitrary than I thought at yeah. the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and what is it like being in Melbourne now? Is it have you do you go to old haunts? Is there have you been to the Butterfly Club or anything? No, I haven't. I mean, it moved. It moved since I've never been to the 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 one in the city. Uh, it was in South Melbourne when I played there. Um, that's terrible. I should do that. Maybe it's I'll very go tonight. Cool. Yeah, yeah, you should. Um, I'm I'm playing at the comedy theatre at the moment. Um, my not comedy show at the comedy theatre. It's pretty hard to get the message right. Um, <laughs> uh, although, you know, there's still plenty of laughs in my not comedy show. But um, it's 200 metres down from the Elephant Wheelbarrow, where I used to play with a cover band called the Sea Monkeys, who used to play in at the Elephant Wheelbarrow St Kilda on Saturdays and and <laughs> in the city on Fridays, and play till 2 a.m. doing doing cover tunes and stuff. And so I wander past that and feel estranged it's a bit like walking past your old high school you sort of feel half nostalgic and half <laughs> sick about it you know, like, um but yeah good times melbourne was joyous even at the time you know where where sarah was social working and we were sort of like are we going to have a baby and not you know really struggling for money and struggling to you know getting buying cask wine you know is that bad <laughs> um i i knew at the time that that it was a joyous time i i I wasn't unaware that I would look back and think that was that the end of our, you know, before you have babies, those last few years, and we just had a ball here. Mm. Yeah. You mentioned cask wine, so I'm uh, stimulated or reminded of, you know, my sister makes us uh, listen to White Wine in the Sun every Christmas. Oh, How... she sounds sensible. <laughs> why, why am I talking to your sister? How come... why, why does she have to make you do this? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's fun. She's, she's started a tradition, but I'm wondering how... Uh, over the 
20 years, have you noticed your work affect people in ways that has surprised you, tipping over into alarm ever? Yeah, well, (laughs) I mean, some of the um, dedicated fans can be quite alarming, but um, yeah, it it is an incredible joy and, and... one I sometimes forget to appreciate, but I, but not altogether. Every now and then, it really strikes me that um, I, I've somehow managed, without ever really getting radio play, without until very recently having a record company, even without being on a consistent mainstream television show, I've somehow managed to just bed myself in um, and. Songs like White Wine and the Sun, which is well, exactly my daughter's age, um, minus three weeks, so almost 17 years old, that it's a beautiful way for your art to become popular, in inverted commas, in that often popularity in art is because someone sees in your art an opportunity to sell units, tickets, whatever records. They put a bunch of promotion and effort behind it and it sure enough does well and then it disappears and that's its moment. Whereas Matilda and White Wine in the Sun and some of my older songs, they've just grown and grown and grown and grown and grown until something that when it was released, which barely was, White Wine in the Sun was known by a few hundred people and every year, I'd say it's probably almost exponential, I would say a, a, a huge number of Australians now would know that song and identify it as a legitimate Christmas. Mm. You know, it ain't it ain't gravy, but it's <laughs> it's probably next yeah. in line. And I can't quite believe that. You know, and then some of the stuff from Matilda. I mean, time goes so fast. It's been thirteen years since Matilda got um, open. And it hasn't closed, and and so there are. There are people who say, I grew up with Matilda. And I'm like, what do you mean? I just wrote it. Mm-hmm. But they're, they're, they're 18, 20-year-olds who have no memory of Matilda not being part of their life, their first theatre visit. You know, there's 18-year-olds out there whose first theatre visit was Matilda. And and especially because Matilda seems to appeal to, uh, in in weird ways, to like neurodivergent people and stuff. Um, that, that stuff is incredibly meaningful to me as well. How does someone who's not hugely into musicals, as you've described yourself, end up writing Matilda and Groundhog Day? Well, I'm not hugely into music either. Um, I think some people come to their craft because they're fans of the craft and some people have success in their craft because they're not, you know. Um, Like, obviously I listen to music, but I'm not like a music fan. I've never queued up for a ticket or waited at a stage door or and, and I've, I've probably been to 10 big concerts in my life so I don't like big crowds and I don't like um the mix in big rooms so I love I like going to bars and listening to jazz and stuff like I'm not a I if I, I know nothing about pop culture or music I, I did grow up um my gran used to take me to Gilbert and Sullivan I, I definitely grew up with musicals playing in the car and stuff um and I started writing music for theatre at 17. So there's this whole, you know, you asked about the narrative. There's this narrative that I sort of was nothing and then a comedian. I, I, I've been writing music for theatre since I was a kid, but like youth theatre and community theatre and getting paid 500 bucks to write 10 songs, you know. Um, so I love theatre. I love storytelling with songs. That's what I do. And I guess in my DNA is enough understanding of the form I don't know how often I love 
musicals, but that's kind of why they're so good when they're good. Theatre is a bit of a high jeopardy art form. I mean, I go to theatre all the time and I guess, you know, I always think 30% of the time I love it, 30% of the time I think it's fine and 30% of the time I think it's a miss, you know, like that's really brutal. But I, I, I'd be happy if people assess my work in the same way, like it, it doesn't always appeal to you. And because I care so much about how dialogue folds into music and out again, I care very, very much when I watch a musical and when I write one that the the turn between spoken and sung is almost invisible and that the, the songification of the story kind of creeps up and overwhelms you. When I see musicals where the work hasn't gone into that, where they just suddenly stop talking and break into song, it makes me want to scream. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, of course, so many musicals these days are jukebox musicals that that's nothing to do with my form, mm. but I find it hard to... I find them hard because I'm like, oh, this isn't the form. Yeah. But that's stupid. That's naive. It's different strokes for different <laughs> you, folks. You don't write music down still? Is that is that true? No, I, can't, I don't know how to do that. But that, I'm very lucky to have been born into a time, you know, when I started composing, I would just sort of explain it to people. And then but quite soon after, at the turn of the century, I was able to put it all down on, on sequencing and logic, you mm. know, and play it all into a computer program. Well, you speak of being uh, maybe retrospectively calculating in your career. <laughs> what, what about... Cause the, Machiavellian. <laughs> the writer of the book, Danny Rubin, who's the original screenwriter, he what lectured at Harvard. Uh, about Groundhog Day, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and you, you have honorary doctorates. I mean, you I think... Have, I'm a fake doctor many times. <laughs> yes, so so you could you could both speak academically about your art. Do you ever have to check yourself or when do you find the sweet spot of executing your craft while also falling in love with what you're doing? I think it, it is interesting and wonderful that the world is interested in Danny Rubin's understanding of the craft and mine. He is a deeply unconventional man and writer. He's an incredibly beautiful sideways thinker. Um, and I wouldn't, I can speak about the form. I could speak for hours about the form, but I've never studied anyone else's score. I have no idea what the form was meant to be. I just know what I have learnt through trying and um and I, i'm an all right you know I, I can i get it you know i i can't read music but i, I understand music and i i, I never learned how to write lyrics but you, you just find your voice you know um i don't have a problem with um i think your question is do to what extent is one applying craft and to what extent is one just letting oneself be inspired by the text or whatever, a bit like that. Or the sliding scale. Yeah. I, I think I, I think one of the things I do well is um, I just care about, like I just go, why do I care about this story? Why do, what do these characters need to say to make us care? Mm. So I, I always think of it from two directions. I didn't realise I was doing this, but in hindsight I can say I think about it from two directions. What does the character need to say? What, what do they feel compelled to say? Like songs are like soliloquies, right? Why does Hamlet, Hamlet, Hamlet's just having a chat with Horatio and then he turns to us and goes, ah, and he tells us everything that's in his head. It's, it's, it's not very contemporary. It's, musical theatre took over from that sort of um, uh, fourth wall breaking stuff. Um, so I think what does the character need to say to us? But also what does I think about from the other, what does the audience, how do I want them to be feeling now? How do I 
tell them something about this character, but also tell them something about themselves, the audience. How do we comment on the human condition and how do we prime them for the next thing I want them to feel, which might be I want them to be rolling about laughing or whatever. Mm. And so I'm just trying to sit inside, um, stand in the shoes of the person. Um, I don't think about form yeah. much at all, except that I'm like, well, I don't want to get bored. I don't want three ballads in a row, you know, and I, I need a key change here and let's get this thing moving. Yeah. And, and what is it about the human condition in Groundhog Day that you're, that it sparks you and you're emphasising, do you think? Well, I think it's everything, you know. It's the whole, that's why it was worth doing. A, a movie to stage is fraught. And I won't go into why, but it's very problematic form, partly because it's often pursued uh, cynically. I'm being a bit of a B-I-T-C-H about <laughs> about the industry, I think, um, and I, I don't want to sound sneery because I certainly don't feel sneery, but I do get frustrated. I get it. Like I'm very, very lucky. The first musical I wrote is is a very, very unusual hit, and it means I can go, well, I'm going to just care about what I care about now, and I don't have to think too much about whether or not it's commercially successful or whatever but there's all this art that gets made because of cynical people going well that'll make money so let's just get someone to do a version of it and it'll make money because people come um so i wouldn't normally do movie to stage but groundhog day is about how you're meant to live how, how you're meant to be a good person how to decentralize yourself from the narrative of your life how happiness correlates to helping other people how the acceptance of death at the end of life informs your ability to enjoy life how to get yourself out of depression how to um uh be most importantly in the moment and i'm not saying it's an instruction manual i'm saying these are the ideas that discusses the character the protagonist has to find his way out of narcissism out of selfishness and out of aspiration out of always wanting more i'm going to get through today and tomorrow i'm going to quit my job and i'm going to be i'm better than this i'm better than this i'm better than this i'm better than these people i'm better than this place and it's about shedding that and and being able to appreciate what you've got in front of you and i don't know what is more important to write about for me and and there's lots of great little things you can write about if you're going to write a musical if it's going to sing it better have big foundations of of big human ideas i reckon mm-hmm. or at least that makes it attractive to me and groundhog day has that it's a it's a philosophy text wrapped in a rom-com comedy sci-fi rom-com if it weren't a comedy do you think you wouldn't be interested well i would have made it one i think mm-hmm. because i I don't see why I, – I, I'm always uh, – you know, it's everything, right? It's like my TV show Upright or whatever. They're like, well, is it a comedy or yeah. a drama? This show I was pitching yesterday, they're like, is it a comedy or a drama? I'm like, what do you mean? Mm. Is life a comedy? Like, why would you go to a canvas and go, well, I'm going to just paint this painting. Oh, there's good reasons too, actually, now I think of this metaphor. <laughs> I'm going to paint this painting, but I'm going to deny myself all those colours and I'm just going to so, – so fine, you go through your blue period. But, but in, <laughs> in a musical, like – why would you? Mm. What? Surely you want to take people on a on a on a roller coaster, you know? Um, so I think laughter is an incredibly important part of of its opposite. You know, you you're much more open to crying or to feeling if you've been laughing, and vice versa, you're much more open to laughing if you've just been feeling. Yeah. But then circling back, you're doing that unfunny night with well, Tim Newton uh, at his piano. How yes. is that going? Is... Well, it's good. I, I struggle to be, well, argue, there are plenty of listeners will be like, dude, you've always been unfunny. And I'm <laughs> perfectly happy with that. Um, 
Uh, people laugh all night because when I get a microphone in my hand, I, I tend to fall towards a rhythm of speech that is comes from all the years I spent on stage um, doing comedy. I'm not doing stand-up routines. And in fact, I'm talking about, you know, <laughs> my, you know, ill mum and I, I'm talking about tough things, but um, it it's always laughy. Yeah. Um but I'm not playing any of the the punchliney songs. A lot, all m- most of my songs have quirky lyrics that make people laugh. But the big setups, you know, I think comedy is zeitgeist. I really enjoyed doing comedy, and in many ways, I guess I'm still a comedian. But I, I, I stopped really quickly. I did like six years. I haven't written a comedy song apart from my political, apart from Pell and stuff, mm. and that's barely a comedy song. I haven't written like punchliney stuff since 2010. Mm. Um, and I have no intention of going back. I'm so blessed to have found a moment where what I was saying, my slightly irreligious, hyper-rhymy, bookish, nerdy, pro-science-y, you know, whatever comedy went nuts, right? And I and then I wrote Matilda and I thought, oh, there's a whole other world and I'm going to go down there and that's fine. But yeah, so this is a... a a show. Some some of the songs were written before I moved to Melbourne. Some of them are twenty five years old. I'm just sort of going. Well, I've got thirty years of songs, and not all of them have punchlines. So I'm going to do a gig where I play them. Amazing. Well, how exciting! When can we see Groundhog Day? Groundhog Day opens late January, uh, two two thousand and twenty four, twenty twenty four, and and runs for just uh, three months, and only in Melbourne. And it's sort of in between a, a the off off West End London run and hopefully almost definitely a West End run. So it's a really weird thing that Australia is getting it before the West End. It's it's really cool yeah. and I'm really excited about it. Well, take the chance while you can at the Princess Theatre in January. You're going to knock off all the theatres? Yeah, that's right. I need to play them all. <laughs> it's actually, I love, I love getting to know theatres. They are the most... They're my church. They're no elephant wheelbarrow, but they're, no, they're that's good. Right. Yeah. Uh, Groundhog Day, the musical, coming in January with lyrics and music by Tim Minchin. Tim Minchin, thanks so much. Great pleasure to have you in. Thanks. Thanks for giving me so much time to ramble on. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> that's right. Triple R. Thanks for listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters, the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or via the Triple R website. <laughs>